all of us. I'm going to continue uh, for the next few weeks in focusing on focus. <laughs> Sounds funny. But think about it for a second. What are we focused on today? I mean, what are you thinking about right now? Could it be, you know, what's going on with the temperature in here? Or I wonder if it's going to rain today. Or, oh, what's Tippin's been up to? What's his hair going to look like next week? Um, whatever. Is he growing his beard back out? Is my child okay? Am I getting COVID? Oh, no, I forgot to turn off the iron. Or the pink elephant. What is it that you're thinking about? Your mind, our minds are always and forever all over the place until they're not. And then they're honed in. And they're honed in on whatever it is that they're honed in on. Now the world would tell you, you could go online today and you could find a plethora of motivational teachers and instructors and people who are like, you've got to do this to focus. You've got to climb this mountain. You've got to get this ladder. You've got to do this. You've got to, you've got to be this. You have other people who will tell you how to be mindful. That's a big buzzword now. It's funny. For a little over two years of me thinking about being mindful and present and embodied, and now it's like everybody's thinking about these things. It's, it shows you how, how, how easily it is that we are fed things that we think that we are uniquely discovering, but yet just the subtleties of Everything that we are exposed to begins to feed us and grow inside of us, our thoughts. What are you thinking about right now? What is your focus in the context of your spiritual life? What is your focus on, in your health? What is your focus in your job or your future, your retirement, your plans? What is your hobbies? The focus that you have with your hobbies, with your parenting. Whatever it may be, our minds are going to focus on something. What captures our mind, our mental energy, our emotional energy? I want you to understand that what we think, these are our emotions. These are our thoughts. And I'm here to tell you, as I've said a thousand times over, these things, no matter what you're taught, are not up to you. What goes on in our minds is not up to us. We can't stop that. As someone who has suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder to a degree since I was 17, it is impossible to stop thoughts. It's debilitating when crazy thoughts. Here's a benign one. I've always kept fish. I don't keep fish anymore because you know the story. One Sunday morning, I hear water running, and this 75-gallon tank is just bursting. It's just running down the hall of my house. No more fish. But I can't tell you the number of years that I've walked by to admire. And I've, I've, I've had almost 80 fish in one tank. And I knew every one of them individually. I knew them. I didn't name them. I'm not there. But I knew them. I knew how they acted. I knew what they looked like. I could tell when one was off and one wasn't acting the exact same way. That fish never comes to the right-hand corner of the thing. Something's wrong. And Robin would go, are you kidding me? Nothing's wrong. Next thing I'm going to, bloop, belly up. Told you, fish is going to die. But there's always been times where I walk through and I admire that and I think, 
I wonder if I knock this thing with a crescent wrench, what it would sound like. You ever had crazy thought like that? Or just feel compelled all of a sudden to just, I just want to bust this fish tank. Of course, I'm not going to. Crazy? Not going to. I'm like, why are you thinking that stupid thing? And you have this urge, it's a, just, just like compulsion, like, just want to bust it. Now, what does your mind do crazily? Do you talk to yourself? You talk to others? See, that's the big thing that I had a problem with until this year. If you and I had a meeting and it was going to be a little intense, I'd role play that sucker for like 72 hours straight, like a record. This scenario, that scenario. And it wouldn't even be like that. It would be literally like first person. And we'd be talking. I'd go to bed and wake up mad with you because of what you said to me in my brain. And we get together, and I'm like, okay, this isn't real. So you get the point, right? There's a lot of things that we wish we could do differently in our thoughts. And there are always some, some people ready to come along and sell us some products or some books or some thoughts or some ideas or a workshop or a conference that will teach us how to focus our minds. And we'll go, like, yoo-hoo! And all we're doing is focusing our minds on focusing our minds on focusing. And then we can never really get away from it. It's just like in our Christian life, when we focus our minds and our thoughts and our attentions on our sin, and we focus our thoughts and attentions and energy on our sinless, our sinfulness, and we try to overcome it, then we are doing nothing but falling prey to the flesh and are not walking by the Spirit, and it is not renewing our mind. Think about it for a second. That's where fear comes in. That's where anxiety comes in. That's where all of these things... And I'm tired of being tired of fear. And beloved, I'm telling you right now that almost all of us are in the place that we're in today because of the things that we think about. And I'll never forget in my mid-20s having this crisis of sorts, you know. You're an adult and you realize that all the stupid things your parents tried to tell you were actually right. And you're like, oh, what a crazy thing. And I'll never forget that a mentor of mine, maybe 30 years my senior, said to me, James, you've got to change the way you think. You've got to think differently. If you change the way you think, your life's going to be great. And so I spent 20 years trying to change the way I thought. Every single day. Arresting my thoughts, reworking my thoughts, posturing myself to myself, not to you and others, but to myself, posturing myself before me, before the mirror of my own consciousness, going... Okay, this is how we think, this is how we speak, this is how we walk, this is how we approach. Come on. How many men in here were not taught how to shake a hand? And how many of us men who learned how to shake a hand correctly, according to the populace, have felt a little less confident about somebody else's masculinity when we shook their hand? Ooh. It's a wet noodle. I won't call that guy when I'm in the ditch. <laughs> I mean, you know, and they could be this big. I mean, they could, they could, you know, it's just the way we are. We think and we posture in this, this silliness. And it affects everything, especially our lives as Christians. We are not free. 
because the culture has told us who we ought to be. We're not free because we've got all these isms and intimisms and all these other things that we've created in our theological circles over a thousand years in church history. And we've come to learn all these things and unconsciously, unconsciously, we are operating in parameters that are literally shackles. I said this to someone yesterday having this conversation. I wasn't in a very good mood yesterday, and it's okay to not be in a good mood. It doesn't affect my joy. Now, if my mood is tethered to my joy, <laughs> there's very little of it in those days. But I thought about this, and I said it, and I posted it somewhere. I don't know some of you might have seen it, but I think sometimes spiritual abuse comes in the form of me as the pastor knowing things that you can't know. Me, as the spiritual one, studying 25,000 hours a week, I see things in the Bible that your little old tiny hearts just don't have time to see. That's baloney. So what's the role of the elder? Oversight. Management. Leading by example. Not being the boss. Not stifling people. Not jerking a knot in folks. Some of my grandmothers used to talk, boy, I'm going to jerk a knot in you. I've always wondered what that would look like. <laughs> I know what it feels like. I just wonder what it would look like in reality. It was literal. And the truth be known is that I've said it a thousand times. If I've said it once, is that you can know exactly what I know if you read the Bible. And if you're not reading the Bible and all you're doing is you've got your mind and your, your, your ears open and you're just taking what I say as gospel, yep, pastor's right, amen. You know, the loudest amens are the least intelligent in the scripture. Have you ever noticed that? Probably not. You've been in congregations where you've got the amen corner, everybody, amen. And when conflict comes, who are usually at the center of that? The amen corner. Because amen, amen is something in the amen corner doesn't fit anymore with what's been said. And the amen comes out, hey, wait a minute. And then it's a conflict of interest. It's a conflict of opinion. It's a conflict of what? Thoughts. It's a conflict of focus. For those of you who are philosophy interest nerds, you'll know that philosophers often have contemplated, and even scientists and doctors have often contemplated, that the physical body and the mental body are two separate entities. That's not true. But we could argue that it is, and we could argue that it is, and we could argue that it doesn't matter. <laughs> but don't you have both? Don't you have eyes? Don't you have ears? Don't you have a nose? Don't you have a stomach? Now, isn't your stomach sometimes upset when you eat the wrong thing or when you don't eat enough? Or when you have an illness, and isn't your stomach also upset sometimes when your mind is not right? And isn't it sometimes that when you eat something, your stomach gets hurt, and then when your stomach starts hurting, your mind starts being worried that maybe I have cancer. No, it's called cornflakes. It's called shrimp sauce. It's called whatever, MSG. Your, your mind and your body are tethered together. They're not separated. And one thing leads to another. That's why the New Testament letters, that's why the apostles are huge on focusing the application of right theology and thinking about these things and then doing these things. Taking care of our bodies and taking care of our relationships as well as taking care of our thoughts because everything is intertwined. Now see, when I've, I've been teaching like this since what? April? 
I've been teaching about these things since April, and I have lost so many knuckleheaded followers. It's been amazing how freeing it has been because all Tiffins is turning into a philosophical guru. I'm just trying to be healthy. I'm trying to be healthy in my mind and my body and my relationships. And I'll tell you right now, if my spiritual health isn't growing, none of those things are going to work. And it's all tied together. What captures our mental and emotional energy isn't up to us. It's deeply intertwined with our bodies. Our material surroundings and the people we engage with are tied together. Why does this matter as Christians? Because it points us toward the transformative power of God's sovereign grace. The ultimate, and a word that I've been using since I was 22 years old, anchor. Anchor. The anchor of our attention. The anchor of our joy. What does an anchor do but hold the greatest ship in place? What is Christ but the finisher and the founder of our faith? Hebrews 12. And so today we're going to traverse a landscape of Scripture, about five or six different places. We're going to unpack the gospel. We're going to explore how this grace allows us to live rich, purpose-filled lives, filled with authentic love for God and his people, and understanding that it all comes down to the culmination of this awe-inspiring sovereignty of God and Christ who gave his life for us, the gospel of grace, which is sovereign and free. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some friends of mine who don't have smartphones. And I envy them. I envy them. I, I mean, I forgot what it's like to take out the paper bank statement and reconcile it with a pencil. I forgot what it was like to, you know, write a check to the company and go to the post office and buy the roll of stamps. I forgot what it's like to, you know, pay the guy who comes to help you fix the porch uh, with a paper check, and he has to go cash it at the at the church at the at the church at the at the bank. I forgot what it's like, you know, to fill out the 1040. I forgot what it's like to have to call and talk to the secretary to find out what your calendar is. You know, I, I've forgotten what it's like, and I don't miss it. <laughs> I don't envy that. I envy the freedom from stress and frustration, the freedom from people and what they can do to us, right? Sometimes the freedom from wasting of time. But, beloved, we, we have to have some smartphones in today's economy to function. I mean, when's the last time you read a map? I can read a map blind. I can read a map. And honestly, maps are better to me in, than... A GPS. So when I go on a trip, I always look at the map first, and it's in my head. So when the GPS goes, turn left, I go, not happening. <laughs> not happening. But for the most part, we don't go anywhere with anything that's not on our smartphone. Social media, I mean, I had a friend of mine tell me just a couple of weeks ago how they've gotten off social media, and they've, they've gotten 15 to 20 hours of their week back. And I'm going, really? What are you doing with it? don't know. There's a theological principle that's been coined through the ages since the Reformation, really, called imagio dei. I mean, it's older than that, the image of God. But 
it became very standard with the population, not just the academics. When Protestants came about and people began to read the Bible for themselves, and then, you know, in the 17th century when it was actually published for the common man in the King's English, authorized by what? Parliament, <laughs> the 1611, and all the subsequent variations. But this principle of the Imago Dei we find in Genesis, we find that in the image of God, he created them, man and woman. And that has been debated philosophically, that's been debated theologically, it's been debated denominationally, it's been debated in the academic circles of seminaries across all manner of headiness. And no one has really ever been able to come to the place of understanding the essence of that until they simplify it. And one thing that I find that I somewhat agree with as I read scripture, according to the apostles' interpretation of the Old Testament theology, is that I believe that we are made in the image of God by and large because we think. And the difference in the other great apes and us is that we literally think to our own demise. <laughs> Why so? Because of the fall, our, think, our thoughts are flawed. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because we are able to give attention to something to the level that we do, this is, I believe, one of the foundations of being in the image of God. Now, we know, if those of you who want to understand the reality of what the image of God is in that imagery, then you can go listen to the beginnings of Genesis that I preached a couple of years ago where I believe the true image bearer of God is Jesus Christ, the man. And that we being found in him then are perfected in Christ as an imputed righteousness, one day to be glorified exactly as he is, and we share in the absolute essence of his glory. That means as he is seen, we get to share in his righteousness because we will be righteous in our recreated selves. So God's sovereign grace allows us then in being made and fashioned in the image of God to direct our attention toward him despite the noise and the distractions of life. Because, I mean, let's be honest. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I mean, do, do you still use a paper copy of the Bible? I do. I do. But when I'm riding, driving, or out with somebody or whatever, I mean, I use the little app, the Bible app, and I use it, and I listen to it, and I try to put it in. If I'm cutting the grass, I can put it in and do it. But moreover, what happens typically when we're distracted when we're feeling a certain way, when we're frustrated. Is the word of God our first impulse or is it something else? Do we try to distract ourselves by going to something else? And let's just be honest, we usually go to something else. Even if it is spiritual in mind, I mean, I'd much rather historically read a theological journal than to study Galatians 1. It's so fascinating to sit down and read 25 opinions on the Imago Dei rather than just read Genesis 1 and let the Spirit of God rest and begin to teach me and grow me in these things. So then let's take it a step further, take it outside of the spiritual sense. It's much easier to just go play chess or to go shoot nine ball 
or to go to the range and blow up Tannerite, blow up some Tannerite, or to or to go on a bike ride or to swim. It's much easier to go do some of these other things than it is to focus our attention on the Lord. And when we don't, and then we come to church, we gather, and then the preacher like, "You are wasting your life." I mean, he's a liar because he's wasting his life too even though that may be spiritual things. I may have 5,000 books in my house, and they most all of them may have something to do with biblical things, but it doesn't mean because I'm reading them that I'm focused on Christ. It's because I'm having theological discussion does not mean I'm worshiping God at all. I mean, how many times past Sunday, how many ways can you skin a cat? How many ways do we have to interpret justification by faith? How many times do we have to repeat the same old thing before we get up off our butts and live life according to the gospel? The the point of the assembly is not to come in here and indoctrinate us into heady philosophers as as theologians. Theological philosophy, I think, is one of the most damning things that ever happened to the American church, especially in the context of the Reformed tradition and sovereign grace. That we love it so much. And some of you who don't love it, what happens? You feel left out. And so if there's anything in the body of Christ that happens in the context of the assembly that causes a, a small or large section of our people to be feel left out, then it's not, a, it's not according to the instruction of the Bible. You shouldn't be left out when you hear the teaching of the Word. There should be something in the teaching of the Word that approaches your senses, that approaches your cognition, the way you think, and that, that's what you're hearing, and that applies to your life presently in every area of your life, and some of those areas that I've been talking about in the weeks past. Psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically, relationally, society, society all the things. Where we are, our faith intersects. So, I'll come up with about five things today that I want to talk about. Turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to end up in Hebrews chapter 12. So there's your about four little stops along the way that you know them all. Don't worry about it. Nothing new. But before we get there, I want to, I want to, I want to give a rebuttal that what I'm doing, because this was offered to me, uh, two weeks ago. What you're doing right now, Pastor, is not exposition. You've left expositional authority. <laughs> okay. Six quick points about expositional authority. Now, what does that mean first? Exposition, the word expose or out of, ex out of versus what? To impose. So if I expose the word of God, exposition means I read the Bible and out of the Bible's written word comes its meaning. That I don't get to imply or point and say, okay, this is a lot. People do word studies. You know, the word study. Folks, words are important. But words and their definitions do not define how it's used. What defines how a word and what a word means? The context. (laughs) Where it's sitting in the context of the conversation and a sentence can't be taken outside of its context or it doesn't make sense it's like a, and i use this as, a, as an illustration to help understand that we know that a what a, uh, a a recipe book has a lot of things and it has some instruction and some ingredients and without the context you can have all the ingredients but you can't make the dish you have to have it in the i mean you can't just get nutmeg water milk and dog food and make anything even though it's all in the book it's in the book 
It's in this section. Look at this whole paragraph. There's a paragraph right here, and there's a list. Now, that's a shopping list so that when you're cooking, you can give your dog some food so they don't try to get the biscuits that you're making. You see what I'm saying? You've got to know what's being said. So words and their meanings are not as important as the way they're used. I misuse words all the time. And thank God for my beloved wife who will tell me privately, you don't ever want to say that word again because it doesn't mean what you think it means. You have misquoted. I don't know what you're trying to say, but that's not what you said. You're going to embarrass yourself. And she's right every time. I mean, I'm like, that ain't right. Look it up. Well, by golly, you know, my great uncle used to use that word. Yeah, he was born in 1870. I mean, don't, don't use those words. Don't use those words. So, exposition. Other exegetical. Exegetical, that the meaning comes out of the text. So, point number one is that when we look at the New Testament writing, we see a broad exegetical framework. Exegesis doesn't mean verse-by-verse commentary. Matter of fact, a verse-by-verse commentary is not useful. That's why I don't believe pastors ought to read commentaries in order to understand it. I think they ought to read commentaries in order to broaden their understanding. To broaden their understanding of other people's ideas. But the Bible teaches us that. So, for example, if I, if I read, the, I'll give you some examples in a minute. But it doesn't always mean, it can also involve topical things, topical ideas that are faithful to the text. How do we test that? Through the context and through the whole, through exegetical understanding. This teaching that I'm doing maintains, I believe, the integrity and the fidelity of tying theological principles directly to Scripture as a broad exegetical framework. It's out of Scripture. Secondly, point two, Scripture-driven theological principles. And this is big because when it comes to application, if you look at the New Testament, we'll see it in a minute. This, 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 this whole idea, that not these, five, these six points and the way I'm teaching now, emphasizes theological pr- principles that are derived directly from Scripture. Each point begins with a biblical text, which is then expounded upon to connect it to the overarching theme of the teaching or what I'd say the meta-narrative of the Bible in itself. So in essence, a form of exegetical teaching, even though it may not be the strictest sense of verse by verse, it is still exegesis because the meaning comes from the text. The third thing I want you to understand is that there is contextual integrity with what I'm doing. So I respect the context of each scripture cited. I'm not going to abuse. So for example, I'm not going to go to a Philippians 4 and just... Say, hey, you wanted that new ball game? In Christ, you can do all things. That's an outside of the meaning context. So if I apply, I can do all things in Christ to other areas of life, I must do so with congruence and integrity for the rest of the text to know that when I apply it, it also comes. So how does that work for you? Well, instead of me coming here and preaching for 40 minutes on Ephesians 1 through 4, and then so I can get to a 40-minute sermon on segueing into application. To, you'd be sitting here like with Spurgeon three to five hours for a sermon. And then I'm going to say, now go apply this to your life. You go, Heck, I've got to go to bed. <laughs> it's time for dinner. Got to go to work in the morning. The fourth thing is you need to understand the depth of engagement with the text. Exegesis is, exegetical teaching is often prized for its depth. But it's not deep. 
It's just the surface. It surfs among the surface of it. And it teaches itself. Like, go to 1 Peter and read that thing. Man, there is nobody in the world that can't preach 1 Peter chapter 1. It just, I give that sometimes to pastors in training. I say, take this. Or Colossians, man. It just preaches itself. You just read it and say, All right, you got it? Okay, and read it again. It's, it's, it's exposition. It's, it just does itself. So it's not depth. Teaching that I'm doing right now may not drill down into the granular details of the language or the historical context. It does dive deep into the theological and practical implications and applications of the text. And so I aim to go beyond the surface level understanding to the meat and the potatoes of actually getting in life. But at the same time, some people who would do what I'm trying to accomplish would say, hey, here's four ways to be a better dad. Here's six ways to be a better wife. Here's, you know, whatever. That's not biblical unless it's exegetical. So if I tell you there's five ways for you to overcome anxiety and what I've done is exegetical, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater just because I simplified it with a five-point outline. Makes sense? I hate outlines. They stifle me. But sometimes they're necessary. There is a theological cohesion and a gospel focus. When I, the way I'm teaching today and, and recently is designed to provide a cohesive theological narrative centered around the concept of sovereign grace, a cornerstone of our faith. The gospel is not sprinkled in. It's an integral part of everything that I'm teaching, serving as the apex of the, of the teaching. And finally... I'm acknowledging different approaches. <clears throat> For a quarter century, I've been hard-nosed into exposition. I've been focused in this way of, of, of not even wanting to breathe outside the particular passage that I'm in, not to use a proof text at all. And, beloved, I've, I've abused the Bible in that way by ignoring things. And in doing so, when the rubber hits the road and we have to deal with something corrective or instructive in our congregation, some people who are involved in the offense are like, uh-uh, you're not going to tell me what to do now. You see what I'm saying? You haven't been telling me what to do at all for 10 years, now you're going to tell me what to do? No, no, the Word of God needs to, we, we can approach it differently. Like if you've got 10 minutes to teach, you can't expose John 1.1. But you can teach it. And you can go to John 1, and you can go to Hebrews 1, you can go to Colossians 1, and you can go to all these great verses, and you can prove the point that John makes. There are different approaches in preaching and teaching. Exegetical preaching is valuable for deep scriptural understanding. But sometimes that exegetical preaching needs to be topical or thematic. And it has its place, especially when, as recently, we've been addressing specific issues or concept, like the idea today of paying attention and our focus in the context of our spiritual lives. Quick, six quick examples of this is Paul's letter to the Galatians. He writes to the, to the Galatian people about a specific problem, the influence of the Judaizers who insisted on circumcision and adherence to Jewish laws for salvation. So the entire letter serves as a thematic discourse of grace versus legalism. The whole thing. It's a thematic. He approaches the Old Testament 46 times in that letter, but he never expositionally, verse by verse, commentates on it. He just imposes it. So the authority on the topic 
is undergirded by the exposition of the theology of, of Moses. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 specifically, the love chapter. I mean, think about that. Paul deviates from addressing the Corinthian church's specific problems and gives them a thematic exposition on love. And I've preached that text in the context of Psalm 40 and, and even in 1 Timothy over the last year. He isn't expounded on any particular Old Testament passage, but rather discussing the topic of love in a concentrated manner. Ephesians 6, the armor of God. It's a thematic, topical metaphor of a Roman soldier's armor that teaches about spiritual warfare. He tackles the theme of spiritual preparedness and resistance against evil, but he's not performing a verse-by-verse of exegesis of an Old Testament text. But it's there. James on faith and works. This isn't an exposition of Old Testament literature. Rather, a thematic discussion intended to clarify misunderstandings about the relationship between saving, believing, faith. I don't even want to say saving faith anymore. Resting faith, believing, trusting, and action, doing, and living. Which is why I'm teaching what I'm doing. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, suffering for righteousness' sake. is a topical discourse on suffering for the sake of righteousness. John's letters... 1 John specifically. It's not a treatise on how you know someone's saved. It's a treatise on because you are in Christ, you are to know him, and you know him best when you love one another. If you're not loving and you say you know Christ, you're lying. You don't know anything about Christ. It doesn't mean you're not a brother or sister. It just means that you're ignorant. You see... These aren't Old Testament exposition, but the thematic teachings aimed at Christian life. All that being said, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. (laughs) Sorry to give that long rebuttal, but it's necessary. And I welcome any feedback. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. Who went on what way? Jesus was teaching and walking from village to village with his disciples. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha, listen to this, beloved, was distracted. See, so if I'm going to be an expositor, if I'm going to teach exegetically, why not focus on distraction? Am I just to ignore it? I mean, let's be honest. How many of you have, have heard a sermon on this text before? Okay? How many of you have ever heard a sermon on distraction from this text? And if you did, it was probably a little misogynistic. You women need to simmer down now. <laughs> I mean, you know, quit doing so much. I mean, come on. And it's all in jest, but it still bites. It's not the point of the text. But Martha was distracted with what? Much serving. And she went up and said, Lord, do you not care my sisters left me to do all the work alone? It's, tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, you're anxious. (laughs) And you're troubled about a lot of stuff. But one thing is necessary. 
Mary has chosen the better good portion, which will not be taken away from her. No, you can't see what I feel in my body. My entire life has been Martha. When I'm standing in this pulpit, I'm Martha. When I'm running around here and all this, I'm Martha. When I'm hanging out at a fellowship, I'm Martha. I got written up at a church in 2001, 2, I can't remember what it was, by the superior elders. <laughs> I thought we were all co-equals, but I guess not. Because I was not investing enough relational time with others at the cost of the reputation of the church's ideal own fellowship. And you need to fix that. You can't have the same people talking to you every day. So what did I learn to do? I learned to work a room like a politician. What do I want to do? Go behind the curtain. Go behind the curtain and read a poem. And take a deep breath. I'm not an extrovert. Very the opposite. So I live my entire life like this. In ministry. Martha, 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 Martha. Looking at other people going, Martha, 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 Martha. Never to myself. But human attention is complex. And that's my first point. The complexity of human attention. What's the title of this message? The grace-focused life. How sovereign grace shapes our attention. Blah, blah, blah. Does it matter? No. Got to put something on the internet. Sermon 63. I don't... <laughs> You know, nobody, nobody looks at that. Here's this passage. It's Jesus, who everybody's been looking for. And one person's, one person, Martha, and another person, Mary. This is their home. One person has focused on what we all focus on. Oh, you know, you come to my house for a fellowship, it looks like a show place, right? You come to my house today... I may have to move a box for you to get in the front door. There might be a bag of rice in the hallway that weighs 40 pounds that I just gave up and laid it there. I mean, you don't know. And if I'm in the middle of doing some towels, they may be on the sofa. And there used to be a time where there were certain rooms in our house that we never were allowed to go in. Because somebody might come by, so you keep that room fancy. See what I mean? And I was raised that way. Don't touch this. Don't go in there. These doors stay shut. The doorbell rings. Everybody walks in and thinks it's a mansion. Couldn't touch these antique things. And I'll never forget these same antique furnishings in my grandmother's home when my children, my older four children, were tiny toddlers. And one of them went in there and took this porcelain Japanese bowl and assembled the top and broke the whole thing into a billion pieces. And all I could do was, like, I'm driving back to Virginia. I was in Dublin. And I take that thing in there trembling. I felt five again to my grandmother who's sewing. And I, hey, uh, Grandma? Yeah? Look! I didn't know what to say. She goes, huh? She's running that hymn. She reaches over here with the right hand. She picks up the wastebasket. She says, right here. She goes, no, look, look, look what it is! Woman, you're not seeing this. This is the most precious thing in the world. And my child has broken it. You know? She goes, put it in the trash. My goodness. And never said another word. You know, and that's the point. 
And she looks up, she stops, she goes, it has no eternal value, son. Let it go. And she didn't live by that when she was 30. I'll snatch a knot and you had a different meaning. Human attention is complex. We put our attention all sorts of places. We put our attention to things that aren't even real, but we have made them real. Mary and Martha, they had things to do, but Martha was so concerned about the house being presentable for the Lord Jesus. And Martha's like, holy cow, the Lord Jesus. I don't know, can you say holy cow and the Lord Jesus in the same sentence? That might, might not be good. She sat down, she's like, teach. I don't care that my underwear is over here and my bra is hanging in the window. Let's just go. And Martha was resentful. She was doing what was good. And the point of it is she was distracted from spiritual things. This isn't, a, this isn't a text to teach us that we shouldn't keep house or that we shouldn't prepare or that we shouldn't, you know, take care of things. This is a text that talks about when the one thing that is necessary, when the things that we're anxious and troubled about are never-ending, when do we put our attention on that which is most necessary? So various things, all sorts of things, influence where we direct our attention. Our physical attention, our embodiment, where we are in our body, our environment, the material context of our world, and the social interaction, the social norms. See, this was all three of those. But the freedom of the gospel of sovereign grace should lead us to Christ. When all of a sudden we see the opportunity to take just a minute and just bask in the glory of our Savior, let's just do it. Not because of guilt, not because of fear, not because of anxiety. Our spiritual, our spiritual freedom shouldn't be a cause for stress. The assembly shouldn't be a cause for stress, but it is for some. So we, as the elders, we as the church family, we've got to decide what is it that causes it. Let's get it out of here. But what is what is history said? Conviction's good. But conviction in Christ is freedom to take a deep breath and go, oh, wow, it's gone. I can rest. Because with conviction in Christ is no condemnation. Con no condemnation leads us to celebration. Celebration leads us to, gr to being grateful. Being grateful leads us to sit down or dance or whatever it is we want to do when we're free. Not hone in. That's why you hear me dig on the Puritans so much. I used to love to read them and wonder why I was always in need of some, like, psychotropics. I gotta do something. Could climb Mount Everest naked or something. I can't take this. Mary chose to sit at the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus left, she finished cleaning the house. It, not just for spiritual things, but also relationships. Because how do we love Christ most? By loving each other. Sometimes, and we have to do this as parents all the time, right? But sometimes we just have to put everything aside and just love on people, and then when they we're done, we can go, oh, now I can get back to the grind. Setting boundaries doesn't mean elimination. The second thing I want you to see this morning in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You probably even have to go there. You know, you know what it is, right? You know what that text says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, so that no one can 
boast. What? Faith is not of your own doing. Resting in the gospel is not your own doing. It's not a decision that you've made, even though it is a willful act of the mind continually. It is a gift of God through which we suffer greatly, wondering, doubting, believing, not believing, believing a lot, believing a little, hardly wondering, being scared, being confident. So when we read on that text, we know that grace, that God's grace is sufficient for salvation. What does that mean? Grace is not a thing that God has and administers. This is where I think some theological brothers and sisters get so bound up with stuff. Oh, we've got to get the doctrine of grace correct. Okay, good. That's great. We want to get the recipe right. We want to get the theology right. We want to get the teaching right. That's what doctrine means, by the way. Get the teaching correct. And that's a process of learning to apply, not just understanding. How do you understand something? You apply it. I mean, I can read medical journals. I could read surgical notes. I can memorize, and I could probably memorize an entire surgical procedure down to the second with all of the different verbiage and walk through it with another brain surgeon, and they would think that I was a brain surgeon, but if they put me in the room, I'm going to kill the patient. Because then I don't have to apply that. I don't have the knowledge. I have the words. I have the talking points. That's not politicians. You know they don't think. They're just reading the talking points that an expert marketer and an intelligent person has written for them to read. That's why when somebody asks them six weeks later, hey, what was your position again on such and such? Oh, what? <laughs> oh, what something? I mean, that's how we are in the faith. That's how a lot of people are in the, in the body. We have these theological talking points, but we never apply grace. Grace is, the, grace is the countenance of God toward his people. It's not a thing that God has. It's not a power or some like pew pew laser, spiritual spirit laser that he's shooting and applying on people. Grace is not, does not exist as a thing. It is God. God is grace. Christ is grace. And he's gracious toward his people. Unmerited favor. And in the context of the gospel, of the good report of Jesus, the holy anointed one of God, which is what Christ means, his name is Jesus on this earth. This grace is when Christ gave himself for us and accomplished salvation for us and finished salvation for us and applied salvation to us. It's a done deal. It was done, one and done. And by the way, when we read the Bible, we see that there is an eternal sense in which all God's people have an eternal hope in Christ. We see that there is a finished sense in which all God's people have the secured, the salvation was secured for them at the cross, and we see there is an experiential sense in which when we are granted faith at that moment, we are counted righteous. But do you know what? There are people who will argue that if you don't pick one of those three things and make it your mountain, you're not saved. <laughs> Can you believe that? Now what text, exegetically, are you going to preach that's going to make that work? None of them. Always a pretext. It's always a little piece pulled out. God's grace is salvation. 
not human effort. So God's grace aligns our physical state and our mental state to focus on him. Our body language, our posture in prayer, our acts of worship are all ways we can direct our body's attention to grace, our mind's attention to grace. What we do, that's why we don't have a willy-nilly worship service. What y'all want to do today? Y'all want to play patty cake for Jesus? And I used to, get this, I used to love as a child, for the small season that I was in church as a child, I used to love song services. You know what I'm talking about? Preacher's sick. Something happens. Penis gets up there. Call a number. Call a number. And just... Hour later. It was awesome. And then when I got in the ministry, I hated song services. Wow. That's a bunch of nonsense. But if the songs we're singing are exposition, it's not nonsense. It don't need to be the mainstay. But you know what? There might be a time we just might need to have a little bit of scripture reading and sing for 45 minutes. It's the songs right. But never should we just be willy-nilly. We just whatever, it don't matter. We just, y'all want to do Simon Says real quick. I mean, you know what I'm saying? There's a place and a time. And it doesn't mean that there's an order that is absolutely mandatory, but there are things that are absolutely mandatory for us to do in worship. And that is hear the word of God read, Prayer, the Lord's table, fellowship, songs of praise. All of these, some of these, one or two of these, many of these, as much as we can. And there's a manner. So even in worship, there's a manner in which we can give our attention to spiritual things. Same thing in our lives. There's a manner in which we can give attention to spiritual things. That we can overcome the anxieties and the constant noise of the world and focus spiritually for just those brief moments in the middle of doing everything else. The third thing I want you to see this morning is the gospel's influence on material context. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Y'all know this text. I won't read the whole thing, but I sure do love to. I sure do love reading chapter 4, but I have to read like the first three chapters in my brain very quickly when I see therefore because I know why it's there. And then I immediately in my mind go to Hebrews 11 because we are not standing face to face. I mean, we are standing face to face with God through Christ Jesus. One day, we see Him this way. We're not being, we're not looking through a veil. We're not looking through the cloud of temp- or the tempest. But in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, look at verse 16. When our mind and our bodies and our thoughts are focused on everything. Beloved, this is, this is my journey this week. That's what preaching is. Okay? It's easy to lose heart. And so Paul says, so we don't lose heart. Now, what has he talked about? Being crushed and all sorts of things, body of death, all sorts of things like that. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us, listen to these words, preparing us for an eternal weight of, 
of glory beyond all comparison. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Let that rest, pun intended, upon your shoulders. Wait. Pastor Trey got me into like heavy lifting some months ago. I'm very faithful to go once every six weeks. Very faithful. Light lifting every few days. Heavy lifting once every six weeks. Squatting and pushing, pulling, rowing. So I've never picked anything up like this in my life and I never hope I have to. Why am I exercising this way? It's a heavy weight. You get to the bottom and you're like, I just wanted somebody to take this off of me now, please. I don't want to stand back up. So how is an eternal weight? What is an eternal weight of glory? Have you ever just sat and rested on the weightiness and the gravity and the heaviness of God's glory? Nobody want to see it. Okay, you want to see it? Go to Moses. Go to Mount Sinai and look at it. Go to the Exodus and look at it. Go to God's judgment and wrath against Egypt. Against all the other enemies of God's people. Go see the Midianites. Go watch what God did through Gideon. What did Gideon do? Scream, clap some shields, or break some jars, no shields, and expose some torches and shout. What did Joshua do? Marched around with some trumpets. And then God did it. You want to see glory? You want to see who God really is? But all those are nothing compared to when you see God's glory in Christ. You see the Son of Man, the Son of God, lay His life down for us. And then we have all this stuff that we worry about all the time. You ever known someone who just all of a sudden came to you and said, you know what, I'm, you know what God's called me to do? Get rid of everything and live in a van. I've got three friends who've lived in vans for decades. Nothing wrong with that. And as long as they don't try to encourage me that that's what God's telling them I should do, I've got no problem with them. But you know what? It's easier. It's easier than this rat race of wondering how we're going to handle it all, how to manage it all, how to deal with it all. And if we tie it, the anxiety of management, if we tie it to hope and freedom and joy, then we're going to be in trouble. That's what Martha did. That's what I've done. But the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So if there is something so weighty that's sitting on our shoulders as believers that we can't think about the weight we lifted yesterday. We can't think about the stuff we've got to do tomorrow. We're just stuck. It's just sitting there. This is, I mean, we're just being pressed down not by the... The justice of God, not by the sense, in the sense where we don't know how to overcome it. We don't want to move it. You ever slept under a weighted blanket? It's strangely comforting. Strangely comforting. Except for your ankles. It pushes your feet down a little bit. 
I wore a weighted vest a lot when I lived in California when I'd walk or ride bikes or do rock climbing. I wore a weighted vest, 70 pounds. And it's neat, but when you take that thing off, you feel like you're about to float. You wear it for a few hours, you wear it for half a day, you take it off, you're like, what in the world? Your steps, I mean, you're like, you're jumping a little bit because you're... I think the weight of glory beyond all comparison is a little bit different. I think the weight of glory beyond all comparison doesn't push us down, but it takes all the weight of everything off that we're rising up. It's counterintuitive to what we believe. What is our posture? What is our focus? Where is our body? Where is our mind? And where are our thoughts in the context of taking on the weight of glory? As we look to the things that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, here it is, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, transient. They're just moving through. The things that are unseen are eternal. This is so simple. What is wrong with me? You know how many times this text goes through my mind a day? I don't know. Because I'm trying not to count things. I don't know. But I can tell you that every hour it goes through my head. At least once. And one of two things happen after that. I begin to punch myself in the head, proverbially, you know, just metaphorically, going, why can't you get this? Or I just feel the release of that weight by meditating on the eternal weight of glory. And you know what I'm able to do then? Whatever I'm doing. Whether I'm looking at a Medicare policy or whether I'm cutting my grass or whether I'm counseling someone or whether I'm studying for the next sermon or whatever it may be. This material world, God's sovereign grace, allows us to put our attention outside of it. Not in a meditative state, not in a trance, but in real ways. Two more things. The fourth thing. And I'm going to beat this... I'm going to beat this gong and cymbal and sound this alarm over and over again. In Mark chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus tells us, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. They try to get Jesus in. They try to catch him, you know, the lawyers of the day. The lawyers aren't here today. so, But, you know, the lawyers of the day, they're like, hey, Jesus, you're, you're, you're wise and all. What do you say? What's the greatest of all commandments? We got him now. He's going to mess up. Because if he picks one, he's done. If he picks it wrong, it's over. And Jesus says, the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your head and all your soul. And the, the second of equal standing, get this, is what? The second of equal standing to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then he throws them all in there. And all the laws of the prophet rest on these. Holy cow. Does that give you chills? 
Is that only, I mean, to be able to see God, the holy, awesome creator of the cosmos, the eternal one, sitting in a human body, speaking that way, going, this is amazing. He just answered their question and they can't say anything because they're guilty of the first two. They don't even live the first two. And now they can't say anything or they prove it. Awesome. I remember, I don't even know when I was, probably middle school, when this agape, you know, people try to Englishize the Greek and make big deal out of it. I remember people making bracelets and uh, shirts and all. Agape love, agape love. It really is. I mean, I'm not making fun of it. I'm just saying how we, instead of living it out and sitting under the weight of glory and understanding the love of God for us in Christ Jesus and seeing the sovereignty of God over even the enemies of the cross. God's grace allows us to put our attention on loving others rather than arguing with them. God's grace allows us to put our attention on loving our neighbor and loving our enemies. And oh, that doesn't feel good to me in my flesh. I want to push the weight of glory off, take the weight of justice on, and bury myself in vengeance. See, that'd be a good, that'd be a good monologue for a Marvel movie, right? I'm done being kind with you. Don't make me take glory off. <laughs> you know, if I take off the grace... You'll see the grave. But it's really the way it is. We can live authentically in love with the, with the people in our lives. We can authentically love others around us in the social context. Selflessly. Sacrificially. But we also love ourselves. Not selfishly. See, and I talked, what is that, three weeks ago I talked about that? It rubs us wrong because we are shackled to the cultural expectations of what love looks like in a selfless way, in an obligatory way, rather than a responsive way. Are we, are, are we responsible? And are we obliged to love? Absolutely. But how? Through coercion? Through guilt? Through pressure? No, through freedom. God's grace enables us to go against the social norms and prejudices and allow us to love others genuinely. Beloved, it costs. This is where the rubber hits the road of persecution. You think theological differences really cause persecution? It doesn't. I've never been persecuted for theological differences, ever. I've been persecuted when I chose to love people in spite of them. When I've chose to be kind and gentle... So much so that the straw men have created a new theme. Because once you find a door to freedom in the gospel, legalists will find a way of closing that door. And here's the new straw man. A lot of preachers will say they're following the Lord because they're kind and loving. You see, and you go, oh, well, that's, that's me. Well, that's my pastor. That's my friend. God will not show them love and his wrath. You know, stupid stuff like that. 
These are friends of mine who, and what do you think about this? I think that's terrible. Don't post that on social media. But what gets us attention? What gets us attention in the world when we start fussing about problems? We never get attention in the world when we're just trying to work them out quietly. When we're making, I mean, did the Underground Railroad put signs up, billboards and newspaper articles? No, because they'd have never succeeded. Beloved, we can love. But it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us our comforts. It's going to cost us our comforts in our religious circles. It's going to cost us our comforts to be loving and kind and patient in the culture around us. It's going to cost us our comforts politically. It's going to cost us our comforts in society. There's something really strange when you don't know that people respect you. You don't know they respect you until you see that they don't respect you. (laughs) And then you find out why and you go, wow. What do we do? But the ultimate focus of our attention should be the redemptive work of Christ, the love of Christ. See, Christ's love should be the benchmark for everything we do in every relationship we have. And the fifth and final thing is the redemptive work of Christ in that love should be our ultimate focus. The last thing we'll do today before the Lord's table is Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. You see the theme? In every text that I've done, it was, it's not my intention, but it's the way God's exposition works. The weightiness, the weightiness, the weightiness of attention, the weightiness of anxiety, the weightiness of chores, the weightiness of application, the weightiness of all this stuff. Let us lay aside every weight and let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely and let us run. Let us run with endurance the race. We're not running away. We're running toward the finish line. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Because God has set it before us. What are we doing? Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, we're looking to the unseen. That's what we do. When our attention, when our focus, when our brains, when our thoughts are looking to the unseen. We're looking to Jesus. It's one of these irritating things here in the ESV. The founder and perfecter. There's no spell checker in the world that allows that perfecter to be actually a word. It just drives me nuts. It's a word. Of our faith. And then the prime example, here's the culminate. I could have just read this verse and we could have prayed and sang for the last hour. But here's the point. Here's, here's the example. Here's the reality. Looking to Jesus, the founder of our faith, the one who gave it to us, the foundation, the rock, the hope, the assurance, the tether, the anchor, and the perfecter, the one who, with us, as we're running the race, keeps us in the lane, keeps us moving forward, keeps us from passing off that baton and going to the sidelines. We are going to run because He is before us. And here is how He did it. Who? Jesus, for the joy of that was set before him in the race, before him, he endured the cross. Now get that. What's your cross? We can name them 
The better question is, what's your joy? Are we focusing on the cross or are we focusing on Christ? Better yet, are we focusing on the cross of Christ and he's not there anymore? He's not in the grave anymore. He is alive and he intercedes for us. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is, as I just said, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look at Timothy. I'd be remiss if I didn't go here. Timothy, in, the, in, in Luke, Dr. Luke's account of the apostles. <clears throat> Acts. Timothy was a quiet, reserved believer. Serving Widows and orphans in the name of Christ. And the powers that be that hate the love that Timothy gave wanted to try to persecute the Christians and they thought, what's the, the mildest, the mildest little, what's the mildest little mouse we could think of? The one that if we got rid of him, oh my goodness, wouldn't it be amazing to do that. Wouldn't it be amazing to get rid of... I'm talking, I said Timothy. I meant Stephen. I'm so sorry. Timothy. Stephen in the book of Acts. Because um, I want to go to Timothy after that, but I don't have time. Wouldn't it be amazing to get Stephen and to lie about him and get him arrested and to get him jailed? Let's have Stephen arrested. But sentiment was so volatile and so vitriol that when Stephen was there and they had more than one witness to say, yeah, he's blaspheming, that the Pharisees, Paul, he didn't change his name. Hebrew, Greek, same name, different letters, different words. Paul, who was the authority of the Sanhedrin, allowed the people to execute justice, judgment, and capital punishment on Stephen. And Stephen didn't even deserve it. But what does Stephen do? He opens his mouth. And he exegetes the Old Testament promise of Christ. And he brings to the place where he is today. And as he's preaching the gospel of Christ, of the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word, different languages. He says, and he came, and you killed him. <laughs> and they covered their ears, and they screamed, so they could not hear his words. And they picked up stones, and they smashed his head until he died. But before he died, what did he see? What really pushed him over the edge? When he's sitting there on his knees before the first rock hits him, before they, they'd had him, they were gnarling, he's sitting there and he looks up and he says, Behold the Son of God at the right hand of the Father standing to receive me. Oh, that was the end of it. And he went. Looking past to the joy, he despised the shame, despised the ridicule, and he looked to the one who was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus before him allowed him to run the race and never let him go. That's an eternal weight of glory. 
And beloved, we can't muster that. There's no three points in the end here. This is how you do it. And a song just came in my head. This is not how we do it. Christ has done it. So we put our minds on him. We put our focus on him. And today, you're going to be overrun by things of lesser gravity than Stephen. And it doesn't make them any less hard. The fear of a child of an unseen monster that doesn't exist in the closet is just as big as the fear of death from a grown man in the body and in the mind. Don't minimize people's sufferings. Maximize their hope. Because the same Christ that can protect our little minds from a make-believe monster has kept us from the wrath of God. And there is no greater fear than justice. And there's no greater hope than grace. Let's pray. Father, may the good news of Jesus Christ be our everlasting hope in the sense that we are able to rest and rejoice and repeat. Father, take our minds away from everything that is not profitable. Help us in the midst of great suffering and stress to depend on one another interdependently for prayer and for comfort. As we point each other to the gospel, Lord, help me be that for others that they may be that for me. Because you know me, Father. And you know the turmoil that so easily besets my race. Help us to look and to see and to run freely, not hindered by the weights and the sin of unbelief. As we take the table today, Father, help us to see. See that Christ has suffered in his body, that we have hope to live in ours. Today and forever, in Jesus' name, amen.